0: detective novel, doesn't it? Murder at Knob. I do want to, before I preach, I want to thank Christian, though he's not here. He might get a chance to watch this later, but Christian preached for me the three weeks that we were away out of town and uh, did a fantastic job. Love that we can just get away and leave, and this pulpit, the Word of God, will be proclaimed and preached. And uh, love that, and then thank you, Rick, for preaching last week for me, doing so through scratchy voice, right, just working through that surgery on his vocal cord and just praising God for him and for that surgery, but also just to both of them, thank you guys for preaching and holding God's word high um, at Trinity, so we are so blessed. And I also want to thank you, church. Um, just for uh, uh, how do I say you, you get it you, you get that um, it's important uh, for Kim and I to be able to get away and to be able to unplug and so I think a lot of you know but our first <clears throat> portion of our trip was in the Netherlands and that was more work related um, for God, uh, Grace Partnership and so uh, we had a, a a great time, but there was a moment where we got um, they, we were driven to the airport in Amsterdam and uh, dropped off, and it was that moment that we were able to say, "Now we're on vacation," <laughs> and so the phone, <laughs> you know, the phone can get thrown out the airplane window <laughs> at that point. And just, anyway, I say all that to say, you, you, you get it. Um, thank you for just allowing us to get away. Thank you for um, freeing us from just the, the demands and the responsibilities and for just, uh, yeah, you know, we were, not, we were not contacted. Thank you. Thank you for just letting us get away. And um, I hope that doesn't sound weird, but I, I believe you understand what I'm trying to say. So we are so grateful for your church. And the thing about being gone for three Sundays is, wow, is it sweet to come home? Um, Not I don't just say that we don't just say that this is where we get to worship God with our church family. This is home. So uh, last week, Rick, Rick helped us to see David on the run. And I feel like through the series of Samuel, both books, there'll be a few times where we need to kind of drop out for a second and just kind of restate some things. We might think that the books of Samuel, one and two Samuel, are about Samuel. Because, well, it's got his namesake, it's not about Samuel. Um, we might think it's about the kings, right? It's like these all sorts of information and, and data about. The kings, and well, it is and it isn't. It isn't about King Saul. It isn't about King David. It is about the King of Kings. It's about Jesus. That's why we're going through these books. And so what's important to us, or maybe maybe a way to think about it, is if at the end of this series, when we get through the end of Second Samuel, If you're walking out of here and you're saying, wow, I know some neat factoids about King Saul, about King David. I know some things about Hannah and Samuel. If that's all we've got, then I will say as a preaching team, we have failed you. But if we're walking out of this building when we've completed this series and you're saying, praise be to God for the king of kings who is sovereignly ruling and reigning here in 1st and 2nd Samuel. If you're walking out and you have a larger heart for the King of Kings, then I will say we have preached faithfully. That's where we're headed. That's where we want to go. Samuel is about the King of Kings, the sovereign king. And what we're going to see this morning is that there's one king and he's hunting and he is trouble. And there's another king who is running and he is in trouble. And there's a third king and he's ruling. And his rule exists to save us from the trouble. Father God, we ask that you would bless our time as we're looking to your word. This is your word. This is, this is the moment of our week. Lord, where we sit under the preaching of your word. Lord, help us. Help me to preach well. Help us to listen well. Help us to respond in a way that honors you, the King of Kings. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first point this morning is there are friends in the cave. Let's read verses 1 through 5. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers... And all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father, my mother, stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. We're going to pause there. We'll just kind of work our way through this chapter. Before we get into those verses, I want you to know, you might want to write this down. Psalm 57, Psalm uh, 152. Sorry, Psalm 57, Psalm 142 are the two psalms, you could say, of the cave. These are two psalms that David wrote. They're short. You can read them um, a little bit later. And I would encourage you to do so because it helps fill in David's heart and his response to the Lord as he's in the cave. Having being hunted by King David. I'm just going to bring to you the end of, of, of uh, Psalm 142, verse 4. Uh, David is saying, there is no one who takes notice of me. Just hear how dire this is. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you. Verse 5. Oh Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. I love how these verses... Verse four, verse five, just back to back where you have this just utter despair. No one cares for me. I have no refuge. Oh, Lord, I turn to you. What in the world is, is, is going on with David here? How can he say both verse four and verse five? Have you ever said both verse four and verse five? Like I read this and I go, OK, what David feels is I have nowhere to turn. I have no refuge. No one cares for me. This is very subjective. You know, our feelings are subjective. They're up, down. They're all over the place. That's what verse 4 is. Subjective feeling. And then verse 5, objective truth. I cry to the Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. And I wonder if any of us have ever been there. No one takes notice of me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my soul. You, Lord, you're my refuge. You're my portion. So you have here in these first five verses, and the reason why I reference that psalm again is because it's the psalm of the cave. You have in these first five verses this gathering of friends and family in the cave. And we should note that. We should note that he's got family who's gathered to him. And it's interesting, isn't it? It references his dad and brothers have come to him. Oh, his dad. Dad who did not invite him to the Samuel party. All right. When Samuel is coming to anoint one of the sons as king, David doesn't even get an invitation in the mail. David, because we're told by by his dad, he tells us as he's interacting with Samuel, he's just a ruddy shepherd boy. He certainly couldn't be the future king. So, uh Dad, and then you've also got the brothers who are there, the brothers who mock David when David shows up to the battlefield and ends up defeating Goliath in that episode. what the brothers are mocking him? What are you doing here? It's those brothers, it's that dad who now come to him in the cave and find refuge with him. It's pretty stunning, but not only that, there's this gathering of friends if if you will, these this other. I'm going to call them just a band of misfits. Do you hear how verse 2 said? Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who is bitter in soul gathered to him. He became captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. And so you've got family, brothers, dad, you've got these friends of misfits who gather to him. And we need to note something there's nothing about David right now that looks kingly. Remember chapter 21? We just saw an episode where he's got spit in his beard and he's acting like an an absolute madman. Uh, Now he's hiding out in a cave and these individuals, these misfits are coming to him. Nothing about David looks kingly. Nothing about him says, hey, let's join up with this guy. Actually, there's things that would, Tell those misfits, don't join up with this guy. To align yourself with this guy is to put a death sentence over your head. It's the cave of debtors and distressed and bitter in soul who gather to him. You know, so much of that shouts our gospel experience. The king who didn't look very kingly, David, in the cave, reminds us, of the king who didn't look very kingly on the cross, Jesus. Not only did Christ not look kingly, but it was also the debtors and the distressed and the bitter in soul who came to him sinners and tax collectors and adulterers and the divorced and the demon possessed and the broken. His closest disciples were this ragtag bunch. Guys that we would have never picked. Welcome to the church. Misfits. Broken. We are friends and family in the cave. And we align ourselves with the king who at one time didn't look very kingly. And in doing so, I guess we could say, to do so, is a bit of a death wish in this world. It's a death to self, for sure, but it's even more than that. This world desires to rid us. And certainly living in some countries, that literally takes place today. You know, perhaps you thought that coming to Jesus meant get yourself all cleaned up and then you can come to him. No, you come to Jesus just as you are. Come to him in the cave in the distress of your life. And Jesus welcomes you in because he's a good and a gracious king. Verses three and four shows us that David goes from the cave to the king of Moab. David, the future king, says to the king of Moab, take care of mom and dad. Remember what Jesus said to John on the cross? It's found in John 19, but he basically says to John, well, he says, behold your mother. He says to her, behold your son. And John takes her home and he's basically saying, take care of my mom. (laughs) That's what he's saying there. It's an interesting thing as we see David, this type of future Christ, taking care of his mother and father. But he takes him to the king of Moab for that care. And some of you ladies have worked through your Bible study in the book of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. Random information? I don't think so. I had a chance to look up. I'm like, well, how long ago was it that we preached through Ruth? I was shocked to see. It was 2016. It was a long time ago. and I just got discouraged. Um, the book of Ruth comes towards the end in the last chapter, verse 5. Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also require Ruth the Moabite. You see, Boab, if you remember from that series, becomes the redeemer kinsman. Boaz and Ruth, the the, the book ends with them having a son. His name was Obed. And Obed will go on and he will have a son and his name is Jesse. And Jesse will go on and he'll have a son. and His name is David. You see, it's not a random thing that David goes to the king of Moab. He's got family. We've got back, I've got Moab blood in my veins, right? And so he goes to the king of Moab and he says, take care of mom and dad. And I think there's something beautiful about that. But not only that, then the prophet uh, Gad speaks to David. David is hearing from the prophet of the Lord for direction. Now, hear me. This is like you and I, going to the word of the the Lord for direction. This is our prophetic voice, right, in our day. And so uh, they didn't didn't have all this, right? Like they, they went to the prophet of the Lord who spoke the voice of the Lord to the people. And so that's what David is doing, and he's being guided by that. And I will ask you this morning, are you in a cave? And do you have friends in your cave? cave can feel so lonely and feel a lot like psalm 142 i just want to say i am so glad for you church there are times in each of our lives where it is a cave i can say in it's almost 26 years being a part of trinity i've never felt like i'm in a cave alone i've got friends and family in the cave. I've got the king of kings in the cave, and I've got the word of God, the the voice of the Lord guiding in the cave. Well, secondly, there's murder at Nob. And as we walk through these verses, this next large chunk in chapter 23, we're going to see these consistent, there's just a lot of contrast between the king's. Between the current king Saul, the future king David. You're gonna see David is running, Saul is sitting. David is hiding in a cave, Saul is sitting, resting under a tree in the open. David is surrounded by this band of misfits, Saul is surrounded by armed soldiers. Let's read here, verse number six. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds That all of you have conspired against me. This is just amazing irony. Saul is asking, what what can David give you? What a lie from the king. And I want us to note this, as we're reading our Old Testaments, this is not just about people thousands of years ago this what that lie that we just read exists today this is not just the lie of Saul this is the lie of Satan himself this is the lie of the world what can the kings of king offer you right it, it is the lie that is often believed you might be here this morning believing this lie if i Give my life to Christ thinking about all the things I'm going to lose. What a lie. A lie from this world, a lie from Satan himself. It's amazing. What can God do for me? Or how will coming to Christ, well, what will I lose? is the lie of our day. Amazing. People say, well, I will, I will, I'll, I'll have to give in an offering. I will lose money if I come to Christ the King. This is what I'm going to lose. Because money is your king at that moment. I, I, I will lose out on relationships and just immoral living. Look, look at what I'm going to have to give up. Look what I will lose by coming to Christ. What, I, look at, I, I don't want to give up my drunkenness. Look what I will lose. Can I ask you, have your kings given you or taken from you? That's the irony of Saul's statement. He's making a comment about what David's going to take from you. All the while, Saul has been taking from the people that was the warning samuel brought to the people you don't want a human king because the human king's going to take your sons and your daughters and you're going to take your land and he's going to take your crops and he's going to take your flocks the lie of this world lives today i don't want to give this up because of what i'm going to lose friend you've already lost not what you'll lose it's what you'll gain in Christ so he goes from verse 7 where he's just he's berating his servants Saul said to his servants who stood about him here now people of Benjamin will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds I want to say to Saul will you will you do that we're going to find out no he's not going to do that And then he goes on, he goes from berating to sulking, verse 8, that all of you have conspired against me. Listen, (laughs) no one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait at this day. Hey, Saul, David is not lying in wait. David is not conspiring against you. All right. Verse nine, then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. And this is Psalm 52. So again, you can read that later on. I really liked how Rick handled David last week. In that Rick didn't mince any words. David's lying in chapter 21. Now, I know we want to excuse that. I know we kind of want to water that down a bit and just say, no, he's a man after God's own heart. He can't be lying. No, he's lying. <laughs> he's lying in chapter 21. And we're going to see today the consequence of his lie. There's a couple of reasons why I agree with what Rick's point was last week. Firstly, it's not David's first lie in the book of Samuel. Next, he lies in chapter one to spare his own life. Situation ethics. Next, hear me. I'm not blaming him in the sense of I'm, I'm not saying in some way I'm better or I would do better. Not saying that at all. But we need to be clear. A lie is a lie is a lie. And it's. This is a a great reason why we need to read and study our Bibles in context. Because if you read chapter one, 21, you might walk away with justifying the lie. It looks like. It worked out for David. Maybe God needed David to lie so that, you know, Saul wouldn't find him. And then Saul would kill him. And then God's plan that he would be king would be crushed. And so maybe this is an appropriate time to lie because God needs our help. Context is important because if we keep reading through the chapter break, we find out in chapter 22, there's a massive consequence to the lie. Furthermore, David's greatest failure is yet to come. Adultery doesn't show up out of nowhere. It starts smaller than adultery. It starts with integrity. It starts with dishon- dishonesty. Now, here I'm not saying that this lie is what caused the moral failure with Bathsheba later. I'm just saying the lie of chapter 21 isn't innocent. And it's not trending in a good direction. So let's not minimize the lie. If we excuse his lie, we will certainly find ways to excuse our lie. And it's David's lie that becomes the reason for the slaughter that we now read about. Chapter 22. Let's look. Verse, verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house. The priest who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, here now, son of a high tub. And he answered, here I am, my Lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? Time out, he hasn't. Okay, he has not conspired against him. There's not some big conspiracy taking place uh, by the priest. You and the son of Jesse... And that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me. No, he hasn't. To lie in wait, not true, at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. Actually, Ahimelech is responding in chapter 21 based on the lie of David. That David is saying, I'm on the king's mission. And so there's that. Verse 16, And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and dis- did not disclose it to me. Now hear what, the, what they do. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Wow. They're standing up to the king. This is, this, is, this is to potentially take your own debt. This sh- it exposes like the, the absolute insanity of what Saul is doing. End the priesthood. Take all the priests. Take them all out. Uh, these guys, they're going, uh, that's, w- we can't go that far. Then the king said to Doeg. You turn and strike the priests. And Doag the Edomite turned, struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And, and Nob, the city of priests, the city of priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, sheep. He put to the sword. Wow. Slay the priests, Saul says. Soldiers. Not willing to do it. It's that big of a deal. Doeg, the Edomite, we're reminded over and over and over again, he's an Edomite. We'll get to that in a second. Is all too happy to oblige the king. I'll do it. Here's the irony in the episode. In chapter 15, God commands Saul. Do you remember? To annihilate the Amicalites. It's hard. It's a hard chapter to read. It's because God is holy. The Amalekites are wretchedly sinful. God's holy justice is to be exacted upon the Amalekites. It is right. It's not as if these are innocent people. And yet it's just hard. Here's the thing. Saul disobeys God. And he spares the king. And he spares the flocks. He, he spares what is... Um, Of value to him. He keeps the king. He keeps the flocks. And then when Samuel loses his mind confronting him. He basically says well we need these for sacrifices. Like no that's not. First of all that's not what the Lord commanded. Um, No you don't need these for sacrifices. We've got that covered. You're keeping this for your own advantage. All right that's chapter 15. The irony is that Saul was unwilling to destroy his enemy. The Amicalites. And that will have long term ramifications in Israel that we can't unpack here, now. He's unwilling to destroy his enemy. Here he is quick to destroy the people of God, the priests, and all who are in Nob. These are not his enemies. Hear me. These are the people who are in his kingdom. These are the ones, as king, he is to provide safety and protection. Saul is the head of being the refuge for these people. He is the one who's annihilating these people. And specifically the priests. Think about this. These are the ones who cried out to God on behalf of the people. These are the ones who go to the Lord and make sacrifices on behalf of the people. These are the ones who make atonement, who bring about forgiveness in the land. These are the Old Testament mediators. uh, Saul is saying, annihilate the mediators. Kill them all. Kill the means by which atonement is made. Kill that which God has set up to be a means of forgiveness to the people. Hear me, there is no shortage of eggs in our day. It was Pharaoh, it was Herod, it was Hitler. Often in our day, at least in our country, sometimes it comes dressed in a fine suit. Perhaps it works behind a corporate desk. Don't be shocked by the doegs of our day. It's why David cried out in Psalm 142, I cry to you, O Lord, I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Well, doeg, he lives on. In our day. And there is nothing that would please. This world more than to snuff out the light. That the believer brings to this dark world. Number three. The king in the cave. Let's read verse number 20. Where one priest escapes. But one of the sons of Ahimelech. The son of Ahitub, Named Abiathar escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, listen to the grief. I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. I don't know that might be a confession towards the lie and then he says what i think is the most glorious verse in the chapter stay with me do not be afraid for he who seeks my life seeks your life with me you shall be in safe keeping can i just it's been 4 weeks since i've preached I'll still get you out. We'll beat the Baptists to the restaurant. All right? So, but I need some more time. All right? So hang with me. We need to cover the king in the cave. Stay with me because you're safe here with me. What? What? David is the most hunted man in the land. What part of stay with David sounds safe to you? Stay with me? Most wanted by the king himself, who's got everything he needs as a resource to make his death happen? Stay with me. That's a good idea. You'll be safe with me. Don't be afraid. I've got you. Hear me. There is so much irony. We've already covered some of the irony in this chapter, but this just takes it all. The most wanted man in the land, stay with me so you can be safe. Saul, the king, is not safe. David, the one who is not yet king, is doing kingly things. He's protecting. He's gathering. He's protecting. He's now preserving the literal priesthood And the priest that is there with David. He is acting more like a king than the king. But he's not the ultimate king in the cave. If you come to point three and you say, oh, the king in the cave. And you're thinking, David, then we miss it. Because the ultimate king is not the king in the cave. The ultimate king is the king who was crucified. And we run to him, our king, we run to the king who is crucified. And amazingly, the king who is crucified, what? He offers us protection. Protection from what? Protection from sin and death itself. The king offers protection to you and I. Friends, this is amazing irony. How can the king who's hanging on the cross who is dying, who is being crucified, who is there on the bloody cross, how can he protect you? How can David be a protection to this priest? Well, it's actually in Christ's death that you and I are protected from sin and death. You see, he saves those It's why you might not be familiar with these terms or maybe you've heard Christians use the term, oh, I'm saved. What does that mean? Christ, the king who allowed himself to be crucified, saves us from our sins. He's the king who protects all those who are his, who belong to him. You are protected. You are guarded. He is the faithful king. He's the king in the cave. And you're on the run, and it feels so alone. You feel like you're in the cave alone, and you're afraid, and you're not sure where is life Headed, the ultimate king in the book of Samuel is the king of kings. God who was ruling in the day of David is the God who continues to rule in our day today. His rule is supreme. None others even begins to compare. What a refuge the king has provided for all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. How can the king save you? By laying down his life for you. That's how he saves you. He's the refuge in the cave, he's the king in the cave. David is telling this man, I I will be what a king ought to be to you. I'll be your protector. I'll be the gatherer of these 400 misfits. I'm your protector. Even in death, Christ is your protector. And it's a beautiful thing. I don't remember, is it Luke or John? But he's talking to his disciples and he's saying to them, you know, this world will take your life. And then he says something to the effect, but not a hair on your head will be harmed. (laughs) And I just think, well, that's interesting. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What does he mean? He means this world can take your life, but they can't take a thing from you. You have eternal life in Christ Jesus. He's the king. He's the king in the cave. Matthew 11 tells us, come to me, Jesus talking. All you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest because he's the king in the cave, which takes us all the way back to verse two. David is the future king who didn't look very kingly. He's had spit in his beer he's running for his life, acting like a madman at times and Christ was the king on the cross who didn't look very kingly. He was actually mocked for being a king. And we tend to read scripture thinking, who am I in this text who who who, who do I most like? am I and we, we kind of elevate ourselves which king am I <laughs> right am I most like King? Saul here, or am I most like King David here? I don't think we're the kings. I think we're the misfits. I think we're the misfits in the cave. I think we're the misfits in the cave who've come to the cave to find the king who offers his protection and his care. He's the king of kings. Christ the king is our refuge. He has come to the distressed. He's come to the debtor. He's come to the one who's bitter in soul. And I invite you, flee to him. Run to him. Christ the King is your refuge. Are you distressed this morning? Turn to the King. He will offer you hope. Are you a debtor this morning? Turn to the King. By his blood, he pays your debt. Are you bitter in soul this morning due to separation and distance? Come to the king and find the sweet nearness of his grace. Friends, are you in the cave? Are you despairing? Find safety in King Jesus. Who is the king in the cave? Oh, he's the faithful king. He's the good and gracious king. He's the, he's the good king who offers protection to those who are a part of his kingdom. Who is the king in the cave? He's sovereign. He's sovereignly, sovereignly ruling and reigning. I don't understand my life. Sometimes I don't either. I, I, I am verse four and five, Psalm 142. Where do I turn? Where's my refuge? I don't feel it today. Here's the truth. I need to rehearse. My God is my refuge. He's the king today. I'm confused about my life. I'm not feeling certain things about my life. I'm I'm a disarray today. I'm a debtor. I'm despairing. Who's the king in the cave? He's the sovereign one. He rules and reigns today. He will do so throughout all of eternity. He's the protector. He's the savior in the cave. He's the gathering in the ca- gatherer in the cave. He gathers the misfits. Praise be to God. That's who we are. That's who we are in the text. We're the misfits who have come to Christ the king in the cave. He's the refuge. He's the refuge in the cave for outcasts. He's the good, He's the gracious King. Let's stand and celebrate Him.